0: Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan. My regular co-host Luke Savage is on break this week. He'll be back soon. But sitting in, we have a distinguished critic, whose work appears regularly in Cinemascope and The Ringer, as well as the author of handsome and informed books on Paul Thomas Anderson, the Coen brothers, and David Fincher, as well as the man who helped lead the reclamation of Paul Verhoeven's showgirls. It's Adam Neyman. Thank you for being here. I think Handsome and Informed is the
1: nicest uh, podcast intro ever. (laughs) Very efficient. I appreciate it.
0: When you wrote your book about showgirls, uh, which is titled It Doesn't Suck and is still available, um, I believe it was published in 2014, maybe 2013. And it's funny, the general critical consensus at that time was that it was still a bad movie. And I saw today that it's on the Criterion channel. I feel like one almost has to explain to the younger generation that there was a time Time when Showgirls was, was almost universally reviled. Like- well,
1: each time I've shown the movie, I've been lucky enough to speak at screenings to this movie at least at this point six or seven times, like with different events around the book. There is always one person, usually, I guess, in their 20s-ish, who comes up and is like, so why didn't people like this? Right. You know? Like, not in like a deeply polemical way or, you know, trying to... <laughs> score some kind of points but sort of just being like i don't i don't see the problem like i don't see the malfunction here like i guess i had to be there why people didn't like it um yeah the arc of uh, the arc of the universe bends towards justice right
0: this is maybe a bit of a digression but last night i had the opportunity to watch a very acclaimed movie of 15 years ago called the dark Knight. maybe you've heard of it sure uh and um i have to say i i did not particularly care for it (laughs) Uh, you know, when I was 19 years old, I thought it I thought it was very strong. And last night's viewing was was quite a disappointment. And I'm not sure to what extent the movie has changed to what extent I've changed. But these things are always refracting and reflecting. And you know, they're not they're not static works, whatever they are. And I guess I'm saying this because showgirls maybe for a multitude of different reasons just looks much more interesting than it did in 1995. Yeah, I
1: mean, without it going down the dark night, uh, you know, rabbit hole or the christopher nolan you know wormhole and i know you haven't seen oppenheimer yet the one thing i would say i mean there's not a huge age gap between us so you'll probably remember this but like as someone who was like semi reporting from the front at that point like in 2008 dark knight is definitely an inflection point in the whole like let people enjoy things or we will kill you uh (laughs)
0: Well, I remember every review on Rotten Tomatoes in 2008 had a comment section, no matter if it was The New Yorker or Dorkshelf.com or whatever. And, you know, the 4% of critics who didn't like The Dark Knight were getting death threats. So
1: so, so there was that. There was the fact that Marvel was not a, a harmful entity Mm -hmm. as yet, and it kind of looked like Nolan and the Nolan verse of the Batman movies had kind of taken this stuff as far as it could go in terms of this kind of grand, unified... You know, theory of of comic book movies and comic book movie reception, now it almost looks kind of quaint how self-contained those three movies are and how relatively, (laughs) not, I don't want to say serious, but like the relative integrity of those Dark Knight movies compared to the huge interlocking product, you know, stuff that we've gotten. But yeah, I mean, in 2008, I published a negative review of that film for Reverse Shaw, which is not a site that tends to attract a lot of angry, really angry anything. You know, and Mm -hmm. it was like one of the first and only times in my life where somehow I think because of U of T, because everyone's U of T email is just you know their name at Mm utoronto.ca, I was just getting insane random emails from people that they have a tone that I think is really recognizable to people now on social media, they weren't like so much angry. They were just like, well, don't you enjoy things? Like, how could you not enjoy this? You know, wh- 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 why didn't you have, why didn't you have more, more, more fun with this? Why didn't, why, 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 why didn't you like it more? And, uh, you know, very vivid memories that this moment of it's not enough for something to make X number of million dollars at the box office or play on 4,000 screens. It also has to be literally the best American movie ever made. Mm-hmm. You need to have both of those things simultaneously, which is very convenient because it validates mass taste and also means you don't have to look for anything else.
0: Well, that was about the time at my young age when a critic who I know you know very well, Armand White, entered my purview. I, and probably many of my generation, became aware of him as the guy who would ruin the perfect 100% Rotten Tomato score for you know toy story three or whatever the beloved critically acclaimed blockbuster du jour was and it, it's funny people were very upset about almost like the puncture like the the idea that something could objectively be 100 percent on rotten tomatoes like yeah. in these troubled times we can all agree on toy story three was and i guess probably still is in some quarters very important to a lot of people
1: yeah and i think it's where i mean it's funny you mention armin because his dark knight review is very memorable to me he had he he has the quality occasionally of, you know, reading a movie very intelligently, even if a lot of the other flourishes are in bad faith. And he honed in on one line in The Dark Knight, which you having watched it last night, I'm sure is ringing in your ears as delivered in an Oscar winning performance by the late Heath Ledger. Something about, you know, like Sanity's a long drop. All it takes is a little push, something like that. Right. right. And he, he, Armin said, you know, that The, the Dark Knight, I, I'm, I'm quoting this from memory, but I think I have it right. It's uh, the sentinel of our, of our cultural abyss right <laughs> all it t- all it takes is a push and when you're arm in white every movie is the sentinel of the cultural abyss and every <laughs> new new movie is a, a calamity but he honed in on something i think was true which was this apocalyptic seriousness that people needed to take this movie with and this was a huge change not just from like the adam west or tim burton batman but like that's a huge change from the sam Raimi spider-man movies from three or four mm-hmm. years earlier like yeah Bloated and and expensive and dominating screens and pushing out art house movies, sure, but people were not fanatically serious about them. And he was right about that. He was like, what has happened to the lightness? Why does pulp now have to be, you know, thermonuclear? And in that sense, Armand was right, you know? this has infected a lot of movies made on that scale. I do love the idea, though, that The Dark Knight being watched 15 years later doesn't look that good, because it was kind of bad at the time. Well, like the... I
0: know. I actually lo- I looked up your review after, because I thought, well, if there's one person I can depend upon to have written a negative review of this at the right. time, it's it's Adam. And uh, you made the point in your review of 15 years ago that the discourse around that movie kind of wanted to have it both ways, where it's, it's both, you know, this is is a very serious movie about very serious themes this is about the Zeitgeist and needs to be respected as such but then if you take it seriously and interrogate what it's saying and find it wanting then the pull is hey it's 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 a pop movie it's a comic book movie yeah um, and, and those two competing impulses uh, still dominate american pop cinema
1: well I, I don't dominate american pop cinema i think the dark knight shadow is pretty long and to its credit a lot of the movies made in its shadow are far worse yes. because one of the things and not to again I, we we're talking about a better movie on this pod but it's funny to talk about Nolan and Oppenheimer which you haven't seen I'm not going to do like a tight five on Oppenheimer but for Dark Knight the level of craft that he works at I would hope so given the budget and the resources, it's very hard sometimes to talk about craft versus production value or when we're talking about movies being well-made, like, what are we talking about? Mm-hmm. And I remember when I watched The Dark Knight in 2008, you know, like, the stunts are amazing and the, the images are hugely scaled and it's all, like, you know, in focus. And you're like, well, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, mean, I mean, otherwise, you're starting to talk about movies that are, you know, famously terrible, made on massive budgets and then have kind of a, a different residue around them. Like, I'm not saying Nolan isn't skilled, but I just remember at the time a lot of people saying well it's a well-made movie it's a well-made movie and thinking that should be bare minimum baseline (laughs) for what we're talking about evaluating a movie of that kind but anyway, you know, Showgirls also a very well-made movie, and you couldn't find a single critic who would admit to that in 1995. So it all kind of depends on, you know, our, our friend the zeitgeist.
0: Well, before we get to our main subject on this episode, one of the many hats you wear is as a teacher at the Toronto Metropolitan University, you teach a course on political satire. Now, I know you've taught canonical examples like the Great Dictator, Dr. Strangelove. I was shaken to my core when you told me that the kids today don't know who John Stewart and Michael Moore <laughs> are, really. Uh, c- can this be true? What, what is their response when you bring up figures like that from, from my coming of age? I mean, I don't think zero
1: students know. Mm-hmm. I mean, in some ways, it's kind of refreshing that they're not sitting dead center in these kids' pop culture universes because they definitely are for the instructors who came up with this course eight years ago, right? I say this with respect for all the colleagues at TMU where they're like, because I ended up designing that course. And you just know that the pitch for that course was like clips from The Daily Show because that's a way to get Mm -hmm. students to, to watch. And one of the whole lectures that I do, which has a lot of, you know, citing various journals and pieces on that idea of, you know, The Daily Show made a, a certain generation. And you've talked about this on various pods. And I, I know we've, we've talked about this ourselves. So you, it's stuff that you have thoughts on your, yourself. You know, the illusion of making people feel knowing and informed is mm-hmm. the powerful thing that a John Stewart does and that a Michael Moore does. And that's not right versus left. It's kind of just like smug versus not smug, right? <laughs> and so the students kind of, they look at Stuart pulling like, you know, faces and, you know, putting his hand to his lips and looking shocked after footage of George Bush talking and they kind of put their hand up and they're like, really this got over?
0: I mean, what they don't understand is that the the median example was set by Johnny Carson, who was studiously apolitical. And the, the the idea of an entertainer like that, a stand-up identifying publicly as a Democrat, you know, somebody like a David Cross who would do that, like, seemed radical in 2001. Um, and now, you know, they're all Democrats.
1: Sure. And also, you know, the valence of right and left and Democrat and Republican has also had some, like, interesting, you know, electric juice powered into it and you get these incredibly extreme figures or mm-hmm. figures who almost seem to curl all the way back around in terms of what their ideological positioning is but you know with with stewart i try and show them and i'm like not saying you had to be there but like you kind of had to be there and then you know from there trying to look at what he does now you know i showed them clips of the the john stewart apple program because he's actually gone like semi-viral a couple of times here and i even just talking about something like his gray hair and this idea that he now has a certain gravitas and eminence that he kind of couldn't have 15 or 20 years ago he's kind of come out the other uh, the uh, he is like you know the eminence grease of you know late night satire or whatever you know their curiosity gets peaked but their curiosity gets more peaked i'm happy to say the further back go with examples. And when they look at something like The Great Dictator, which is a movie I know you love very much, as as we all should, they really are kind of roused by it. Because the distance, or even talking about Orson Welles, and, who's not known as a satirist primarily, but like the War of the Worlds radio broadcast, we talk about to some extent as a hoax and a satire of broadcast conventions, and as an extension of the the sci-fi satire of the H.G. Wells novel, which was very much a critique of imperialism and colonialism where the Brits are just like, oh, that sucks to have that happen to us. Um, (laughs) But when they see Wells and, and Chaplin and I sort of say to them, you have to realize this isn't done with the distance of a Jojo Rabbit you know cuz Jojo Rabbit is their reference point for the great dictator they're like oh it's the original Jojo Rabbit I'm like yes and he made it mostly with his own money in 1940 <laughs> not after Mel Brooks had done Springtime for Hitler and you know the downfall satire videos and all the stuff that insulates someone like Taika Waititi from the history that he's dealing with 70 years later when they see you know, Chaplin doing that in 1940, 41, or Wells doing what what he was doing with Citizen Kane and Hearst in forty 41. I'm happy to report that the kids are all right. They're like, that's awesome. So that's mm-hmm. great. And it completely puts a lie to the idea that kids don't like older stuff. Just show it.
0: I'll take it very seriously. You've taught the course more than once, you know, teaching it to an audience whose reference points and indeed worldviews were shaped more recently. Has that affected your perspective and affected the curriculum yeah absolutely because
1: it makes me very self-conscious about am i forcing not just reference points but like you know my own sense of humor and my own politics on a group of students who you know (laughs) just might not want to bite and it's not so much presuming right versus left but it is you know how eventually droning and alienating is the list of like you know Oxford educated funny guys to talk about British satire in the 60s and you know that's mm-hmm. pretty I mean you know can you talk about David Frost and Monty Python and everyone else who did that was the week that was or does it start just looking really alienating and insular in terms of who gets to set the terms for for satire which is why I let the student not let I mean the the, the big assignment that the students do which is worth a huge portion of the grade is find a figure from outside the class for their final paper and put that figure not just into conversation like into conflict sometimes subversively with people who are being taught in the class not to negate them or cancel them but to sort of you know undermine them and even show how you know the subversion or the the radicalism of the past kind of needs to be tweaked or or, or pushed even further kind of within the future. You can also imagine just like teaching comedy on a campus now is fascinating and that's not going to digress into like you know no one has a sense of humor. I don't mean that, but it is tense, right? Like I talk about the Charlie Hebdo shootings or you talk about the South Park cartoons or even just dealing with um, the only piece The Onion's ever redacted, which I won't say, but look it up if you're listening. What's the only piece The Onion ever apologized for? And it's quite instructive to teach that and see how a group full of multi-ethnic, multi-racial, you know, some Toronto born, some, you know, uh, first or second generation Toronto immigrant students talk about that stuff. Um, I feel very lucky to get to do it. And then teaching that course three or four times, I'm amazed not a single class has ever blown up in my face it's just a it's just a matter of time
0: Regarding that class assignment that takes up so much of the grade, um, are you able to say some of the sort of off-canon figures that the students are typically drawn to, or maybe even some that you didn't know a lot about? I'm kind of curious who's being identified as you know
1: a fair number of uh, podcasters, especially in the last couple years, where students have wanted to write. And remember, writing in a satire course doesn't mean you're arguing the case that someone is a good satirist or a bad satirist. In some you're not even argue that it's a satirist, but some of the rhetoric around them touches those topics. Like I student write a paper on Alex Jones, and I student you know a little less contentiously write paper about Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. You know, as students reach back and sort of argue that without necessarily being comic writers, you know, they a student wrote about uh, Joan Didion or a student wrote about Sontag all under the heading of new journalism. And I mean, in some ways you could say the fact that students wrote about them is bad because it means they're not in the curriculum proper. Right. Mm-hmm. But um you know, I mean, certainly I teach the students Dorothy Parker or, you know, like Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. So, you know, I've had students write paper, papers on Jordan Peele. I had students write papers on Boots Riley. I've had students write papers on musicians like, uh, you know, a student wrote a paper on Weird Al Yankovic or a student wrote a paper or made a really, really interesting case to try and write a paper on um, an Insane Clown Posse right? And sort Mm -hmm. of try and talk about that entire cultural phenomenon, which is actually really hugely academically theorized. There's lots of papers on juggalo culture. And I try not to say no to any of it, because, you know, like if someone's 20 and they're really interested in something, you don't want to say, like, no. Mm-hmm. Right? The only stuff that I'm hesitant to 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 let people do sometimes is if it goes too far afield from journalism, because it's within a journalism course, but then it's also like, you know, everything is kind of recoupable under that omnivorous heading of popular uh, culture. And again, you know, to talk about the pod, the, the the podosphere or whatever, inevitably and somewhat interestingly, I've had students write papers about, you know, Chapo trap and Red Scare, who also are less (laughs) familiar than you might think with a group full of undergraduate students. They don't know that those things exist, but the ones who do know that they exist are very into them and kind of want to write about them and make arguments for them so it's 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 interesting and it certainly beats reading 40 papers about you know network or (laughs) or network or whatever although what is funny too is and you know it's a wonderful phenomenon of like pop cultural osmosis where i'll show the scene from network with peter finch screaming and i'll ask the students what they think and they'll all say the same thing which is like oh that's what that's from right (laughs) like god knows what version they've seen of it or what iteration of it but it that's the scene that and the ending of face in the crowd where you know the mic is left on and, and that's the end of andy griffith all the students are like "Ah, oh, cool there's an original version of that right right <laughs> that actually comes from like a thing uh <laughs> which uh, again i'm not saying that with any like the snarkiness it's wonderful because they're because you know they're 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 just very happy to, to know that that's what that's from
0: i'm always making discoveries like that myself you know you're listening to shakespeare and one of his phrases will come up yeah probably then repeated in the dark night <laughs> <laughs> actually um my favorite line in the dark night even better than the one that armin cited was when batman tells the joker the people of gotham just told you that they're ready to believe in good
1: yeah i like that part too mm. it's so funny because what's well, not funny it's really sad i mean heath ledger's very good in the film obviously that's not yes. like a hot take he's very good and the movie so obviously doesn't want to get rid of him i mean mm-hmm. why would they right so that kind of salvage editing they do at the end where they kind of give him a farewell mm-hmm. and keep him around but there's no point in keeping him around because they weren't going to get to use him again that's a real interesting case of like a giant movie having to pivot pretty delicately in real time because that was all, he died during the edit, right? So figuring out what to do with his last scene. And actually Nolan does his very best directing in that last scene where he does the upside down uh, mm-hmm. shot. Pretty simple. Stolen from Cape Fear. That's a, a steal from from De Niro upside down in Cape Fear. But it's still pretty great, I think. With Ledger, uh, his, his hair whipping and twirling even though he's facing right side up is pretty good.
0: You know what? I actually agree. Yeah. Uh, now uh, I could talk about the Dark Knight all day, but uh, our, our movie on this episode is, of course, a longtime favorite of Adams, and a movie I only recently saw for the first time, Trouble Every Day, by the great French filmmaker Claire Denis, whose other films include Beau Travail, Thirty Five Shots of Rum, and the more recent High Life with Robert Pattinson. Mister, Mrs. Brown. <laughs> Welcome to Paris, Mrs. Brown. I hope you'll enjoy your stay No, Dr. Simono doesn't work here anymore I really need to find him He's Just uh, up and left His wife is sick Or sick He is very sick yeah. When this film screened out of competition at the 2001 Cannes Film Festival, the critical consensus was that it was a rather ugly misfire. It did little better at the box office. No less a critical eminence than James Quant cited it as a key example of the new French extremity, a group of French arthouse movies of the late 90s and 2000s that dealt in extreme violence and sexuality. Other films include Baisemois, Irreversible, Anatomy of Hell, Martyrs. I gather i haven't had access to his piece but i gather james quant did not approve of
1: this wave of movies james's piece is very important because he was lamenting in a anyone who who is motivated by this podcast to seek that piece out should, because it's a pretty pivotal piece of film criticism. At least, you know, not as pivotal as, you know, twenty five things you missed in the dark night, but different, <laughs> you know, different realm of film criticism, right? Where Quan was sort of arguing that these are all interesting directors and these are significant directors in terms of their aesthetic, in terms of their relationship to film history, that these were directors getting a huge amount of attention at festivals. And in the case of someone like Claire Denis, like, you know, very gifted. And he was frustrated that whether because of some deference to a market, particularly a kind of transnational festival market, that, you know, violence and extremity were not so much good faith extensions of their cinema, but they were a kind of compromise or a kind of cynical capitulation. They were a substitute for what was good about their work previously or challenging about their work previously. he's kind of grading on a scale within the piece. There's some directors who he's just like... That's all they do, and it's a very little interest. But in Denis' case, I think there was a little bit of a... Or not a little bit, I think pretty significantly, like, some regret, right? Mm-hmm. Where he's like, it's frustrating to see her doing this. and And he ended up being castigated as a bit of a prude for this piece, which he's not... And, you know, it's a piece that a lot of critics, including the Toronto-based writer Alex West, when she wrote a history of the new French extremity, you know, took significant issue with. I mean, he had a lot of writers take issue with that piece where they thought he was underselling the movies or not giving the filmmakers their due or not accepting that horror and the language of horror are a very, you know, smart way to deal with social taboos and, you know, and, and, and cultural history. Like, again, basically calling him a bit of a prude. It also helped create a selling point around these movies. Where it's like, oh, there's a cycle of movies and they're extreme, New French Extremity, that's saleable. And in a weird way, in calling it out and criticizing it, he kind of helped to galvanize a certain categorical currency around these movies.
0: Well, I missed certain of these critical wars when I was growing up, and I have to say, I mean, I was aware of the new French extremity as a movement, but I I wasn't quite aware of, well, maybe to some extent I was aware of how contentious certain figures like Gaspar Noé are. But this movie, in particular, Trouble Every Day, among a certain generation of cinephiles, my sense is that it's become very highly regarded. For those who don't know, this is Denis' entry in the horror genre, but I'm surprised by Quant's reaction as I find it sort of aesthetically of a piece with the rest of her work. It's no less slippery and evocative, as well as replete with the sorts of sensual pleasures as the better-received movies.
1: Yeah, well, you could you could argue that, you know, it takes a lot of the things in the other movies, tensions or feelings that were latent, and then again, it pushes them to a kind of extreme. And I think that, you know, because we don't want to mischaracterize what Quant wrote even though we may disagree with it because for me Trouble Every Day is an extremely important movie and I love it with my whole heart and care very much about it so I I, you know I like it. I don't think it's bad. But I also don't think that he was writing in bad faith. I think he was sort of writing about this idea that there was a little bit of a compromise and a little bit of of capitulation to fashion and a, a kind of very, you know, potentially, you know, moronic or intellectually deficient kind of fashion by just, you know, leading with blood, leading with gore, leading with these things and not just leading with them, but like pushing them so far into the foreground which is part of you know as, as I'm sure you you'll you'll say I and mean, we'll both talk about the movie but I mean in trouble every day it's so unapologetic about that to say that that's what it's doing as a criticism is sort of just beside the point you know like it knows this is not a misstep by the director
0: Well, at the risk of straying too far afield, I'm a little curious uh, if you have any insight into the sort of zeitgeist in the French film industry in particular that spawned this wave of movies. Because you look at a movie like Irma Vep from 1996, and it has this very strong, like, Susan Sontag, Death of Cinema undercurrent, where, you know, the new wave directors are all washed up, and them and their acolytes are, like, big Tim Burton fans now, you know?
1: Well, what are the two key uh, Parisian movies of 2000? Two thousand and one. They Are Trouble Every Day and Amelie mm. by, by Jean-Pierre Genet, right? A mm-hmm. fil- a, a, another filmmaker of a certain extreme style. Uh, and maybe, you know, extreme nausea, depending on how you take it. I mean, (laughs) again, Alex, Alex West's book, which I I recommend highly on new French extremity, not just the French industry, but, you know, a lot of the things going on late nineties, early 2000s in terms of like, you know, shifting population demographics, particularly, you know, anxiety over immigrant populations and traditions in a kind of collision, right? There's like very, very staunch traditions in French culture and society tied to a lot of things, especially, you know, religion and ethnicity that certain of these films really sort of poked at and opened up, you know, whether it's even something that I think does qualify as like satellite to do French extremity, like Michael Hanukkah stuff, which actually I think a lot of people would say is closer to Claire Denis or Claire Denis closer to Hanukkah than to, you know, Martyrs or, or Inside, which are real genre movies. The question of how much Trouble Every Day is a genre movie is a fun one to deal with because I think it is and and owns it, but also it's obviously so much more or so much different. Like there's a lot of Venn diagrams overlapping with what it's doing. But I do think that in 2001, that outlier quality that Quant recognized really was a matter of festival branded French cinema. And the real detonation point for that is Gaspar Noé, right? And I Stand Alone, which is a great title for a Gaspar Noé movie. That should be the name of whatever retrospective someone's going to do, you know? (laughs) standalone that this like brutal subjective film that owed so much to like you know the american cinema of psychosis and lone madman kind of stuff and maybe also like matthew kasovitz's lahane which is a very political movie but which has a very salably violent aesthetic right but then i don't think trouble every day actually has much in common with those movies even though it's grouped with them
0: well, uh, first of all, I'll give listeners a bit of friendly warning. There are, there are listeners who like to follow along at home and watch the movies. They should be advised that this movie has a lot of violence, including some quite upsetting sexual violence, so viewer discretion is advised. A quick plot synopsis to ground people. The plot concerns a couple on their honeymoon, Dr. Shane Brown, played by the notorious Vincent Gallo, and his new wife, June, played by Tricia Vesey. Dr. Brown has a hidden motivation for choosing Paris as his honeymoon spot. Uh, Years ago, he knew a scientist, Dr. Leo, and his wife, Coray, played by Betty Blue herself, Beatrice Dal, and he wants to find Coray again. I don't think the word vampire or cannibal exactly appears in the dialogue, but something along those two archetypes is how Coray acts. She seduces men, often, you know, in a field somewhere, and then feeds on them, literally. And then her husband, Dr. Leo, has to clean up the mess and hide the bodies. Now, I gather from your letterbox review on this film that this was a very formative movie for you at a very formative age. What were your first impressions?
1: That, you know, for reasons that were like both, you know, fun to try and articulate and also reasons that were very uh, anxious to try and articulate and share with people that the movie just kind of meant the world to me. Like it kind of meant the world to me watching it in in real time. There was something about and this is what it always is with with Denny's movies. And, you know, it's. Very, like, you know, every other movie, as you know, gets kind of compared to David Lynch, and even a great filmmaker like Denis comparing her to Lynch doesn't really do either of them any favors, right? But I'm a sucker for movies, I guess, where literal and figurative are not separate categories, and where things are absolutely happening, and the movie isn't coy about them happening, they're not, it's all a dream but but also you know the action is quite figurative and the action is quite metaphorical in real time and it's not just simply happening as a plot point or it's not just simply happening as material reality right and that's her thing. And I could just feel that this was a thing that she was doing in this movie, which is so tactile and palpable and fleshy, the way she shoots bodies and the way that those bodies occupy certain spaces, the way that characters look at each other. Like, when characters look at each other, you can see them somehow imagining being, like, with each other or on each other or in each other, you know? Like, it's very, very charged that way. Uh, but at the same time, <laughs> you know, She's playing with not just desire, but she's playing with dread and she's playing with genre tropes. And then she's withholding so, 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 so much. She's withholding anything in the nature of exposition, logic, plausible motivation for these characters. They don't even really have personalities. They kind of just have, like, wants and desires. So the movie feels to me, or felt to me, when you're asking what it was that was so formative, it felt... So dreamlike, but also so granular and real, so spacious and spare to the point of being kind of abstract, but not safe, like a lot of abstract movies might be, because at any second there's the possibility you're going to see something you really don't want to see or that you kind of do want to see. And then you're like, oh, shit, what am I looking at? Right. Because she's playing with those links between desire and violence and, you know, sex and consumption that other filmmakers have. She's not inventing anything. But her language for it is pretty radical and declarative and influential. And not to get too ahead of ourselves, but we, we draw a line 20 years into the future, you talked about from, from Trouble Every Day, you talked about Trouble Every Day not being well-received at Cannes and influential critics, you know, hating it, which is true. 20 years later, not only does a movie like Titan play in competition... But it wins the Palme d'Or and Claire Denis kind of gets her flowers retrospectively, as she should, from Julia DeCorno, who's very classy when when she talks about the movies that she loves. So, you know, Trouble Every Day kind of, you know, got (laughs) cut down so that Titan could run 20 years later. And the kind of art film, horror film hybridization that Denis was playing with, that's now become standard issue. That's every other movie at Cannes now every other competition film, whether it's Decorno or Refn or whoever, right? We don't have to name the names. You're, we know who we're talking about. These are all under the sign of trouble every day, even if it didn't inspire filmmakers to make them. It helped carve out a space for, I think, a very, very common kind of art exploitation strategy. And I still don't think it's been matched, but that's a matter of
0: you also mentioned that it rewired your spectatorship circuits in real time. And I mean, one of the first impressions watching this movie is the many ways it doesn't behave like a normal movie. You know, characters don't reveal themselves through dialogue, they reveal themselves through looks, through crying, through having sex two of the central characters are basically monsters in the horror film sense of the term but they're not announced as such and there's no explanation for them and then further the way that her camera works there are many scenes where the camera sort of drifts often the visual compositions aren't conventionally expository And there are other times when it quite literally makes the human body a landscape. There are many scenes of the camera a centimeter away from Vincent Gallo's torso or somebody else's body, sort of looking at at every pore of it.
1: Well, her her camera had always been trying to eat her actors before she actually, you know, turned cannibalism into a subject matter, right? You look at those first few films and the camera's all over her actors and it really is almost more like appetite than gaze it's hard to say because you end up it's funny she's such an unpretentious person i think but people including myself kind of lapse into pretentiousness when talking about the movies because you're trying to find a language for how they're working and i think you're so right that with her camera as you said i think very smartly like just there's no expository (laughs) setups to scenes
0: Well, I mean, the movie disorients one from its opening seconds, where it opens, you know, with the wonderful uh, Tindersticks melancholy musical score playing, with a couple kissing in the car. And it lingers on them, and then it fades out, you get the credits, and then it fades into a completely different couple, you know, Vincent Gallo and his wife. And the way that those shots are connected, much like how the rest of the movie works, it feels more like music than pros. For for, for sure. And with, again, this not just embrace,
1: but this almost um, privileging of abstraction. One of my favorite moments in the whole movie is when they're flying on their way to their honeymoon and he looks out the window of the plane at this vaguely geometric alignment of lights and you just hear him say it's barely in the sound mix, too. He just goes, that's Denver right because they're flying from america to europe and Gallo, in his weirdly melodic high-pitched voice he's talking to her looking at the plane window he goes oh that's denver and it's just so dislocating you're like what's denver those lights there they're in a plane like it's kind of a non-space is this an american movie these are certainly english language american characters you know it's it's a very very small moment but of course you know that's the magic of denise cinema because she's so specific those small moments kind of burn into you right and you talked about you know the characters are monsters both beatrice doll and vincent gallo get identical moments by the time gallows comes around it's later in the film and maybe you're more able to read the language but that bit where beatrice doll is walking by the side of the road in that kind of half dusk half dawn light and we don't really know what she's done we certainly don't know that in plot terms she's like you know murdering sex cannibal whatever and she lifts her coat up right it's a coat or a it's it's something that's kind of long and loose on her and she lifts it up and it's like a complete vampire pose completely decontextualized because we don't know we're watching a vampire movie and it's like just this little private moment she's not doing it for anyone's benefit except her own And that's mirrored later when, in Notre Dame, Gallo does the gargoyle shtick. Yeah, which has been widely memed over the years. Widely memed, where he's kind of, you know, lurching towards her in this fake, menacing way, which, again, is like a kind of a microcosm for their entire dynamic, and really for what's going to happen narratively, to the extent that the movie has a narrative. Because these characters, played by Dahl and then Gallo, who've been infected... By these scientific experiments. And there is one hilariously B-boovie-ish scene, which almost seems like B B-roll that kind of like kind of talks about what's gone wrong. Yeah, you know, it's like about two mm-hmm. seconds long. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they are both kind of moving through the world as science fictional monsters, science fictional slash supernatural kind of monsters who pose a threat to strangers and also in a way to the people who love them, which are sort of the dual narratives and we wait for the moment of crossover between them because at first for about the first 20 or 30 minutes part of that dislocation is it's these two couples and like what on earth connects them besides the fact that in each couple one member seems to be pretty restless
0: tonally i feel like i got on the movie's wavelength pretty much as soon as that early plane scene with gallo and his wife i'm not quite sure how to describe this but there's something about the space of an airplane which is both kind of intimate and alienating at the same time it's both like a entirely transitory unsentimental space but it's also one that's so well, yeah, so intimate as I said. And you have this couple who are newly married who in that moment seem they seem warm in each other's embrace, but there's a kind of delicacy as well to Gallo himself as a screen presence. He's, you know, he is in this movie and in all his better performances, he always has this sort of mix of like sharpness and softness.
1: Yeah, and it's funny because his behavior makes it hard sometimes to remember pretty good actor. Oh yeah you know i mean when he when he when he chooses when he, to be <laughs> when he when, yeah. he when he when he when he wants to be when he chooses to be, you know you mentioning the plane and the kind of space that it is does uh, it's, it's, it, it, you know brings to mind how much Trouble Every Day is a movie of also of, of hotel rooms which are also kind of like weirdly spaceless, placeless uh, you know they're kind of transactional one of the characters in the film is a maid and you see lots of her making up and doing people's rooms and part of the background of Trouble Every Day is I think it was originally going to be part of an omnibus between a pretty interesting group of filmmakers including Asayas, the king of airplanes and hotel rooms and uh, I think I one point, even Adam Goyen, the idea of films that were all set in and around hotels, and saying that Trouble Every Day is a movie about hotels is both reductive and doesn't make it sound, you know, like the transgressive masterpiece that it is. But the airplane, the hotel, that idea of you're not not really at home when you're visiting a place and how out of place they are is really woven into some of the unease of the movie. I think it's one of those movies where the honeymoon itself is just such a thing of dread. The honeymoon and the ideas of consummation that go with it once you figure out that this is a movie about people who, you know, they don't just have sex, but they like, you know, sex murder their partners. The idea of him and his little bride in Paris, this romantic city of love is like really terrifying, you know, like scary in the sense of, you know, one set of anxieties, which is, you know, is he the man for her? Is he going to cheat on her, you know, in this romantic city, but also like not good if they, if they're going to hook up because... (laughs) Going to hurt her. And that's very, very much on our mind the whole time.
0: Well, you mentioned how tactile this movie is. Bodies, flesh, touch are all very important in the movie. They're both deadly and also nurturing sometimes at the same time. There is a certain unease to the relationship between Gallo and his wife, but there's that scene early on when she's naked in the bathtub when, I don't know, there's like a a strange intimacy to it. Um, Sure. There's a beauty to it. And You know, this is hardly the first horror film to draw a link between sex and death, but there are some scenes in this movie with the Beatrice Dow character that begin very erotic and become very gruesomely violent. And there's not really a clear delineation on when they stop being erotic, if indeed they ever do. No,
1: there's no, that they, they, they don't stop. And that's what I meant before when I said, you know, it's a movie people watch through their fingers because they don't want to see it, but they also watch it through their fingers because they kind of do. And I'm not saying I know each individual person's motives for watching the movie. I just think that she intermingles those things so closely, so boldly. And one of the things, too, I thought about this movie, I don't know what you thought, but it's provocative and it's transgressive, but there is not a single sense that it's proud of itself. And I know that's a very subjective response and I know that sometimes there's filmmakers I think are way too proud of themselves for being, you know, edgy and other people would say, well, that's not fair. You know, they're not. You're you're reading that into their intention. I mean, you know, even if it is their intention, like, how does the movie play? You know, I just I never watched this movie thinking that this is a filmmaker who was setting out to push boundaries or shatter taboos or rub people's nose in it in any kind of, like, self-pleased way. I think it comes from a very unconscious place for her, and I'm very lucky incredibly lucky, in fact, to have interviewed her a bunch of times and have some sense of her, maybe not as a human being in her life, but certainly as an interview subject and an artist. And she always, I'm always very moved when Claire Denis says this. I'm moved by it because I think she's one of the supreme filmmakers I've ever seen in my life. She's like, I'm a very timid person. She's like, I'm a very timid person, a very anxious person. So my movies can't be that. Right? The movies are confident because I'm not. Or I'm anxious and that's why the movies are so fearless. And so I look at Trouble Every Day as like a really extreme... <laughs> case of that, where she's not working with a filter, but there's no smirking. There's no smirking. There's no smugness. There's no kind of like, can you believe what I'm getting away with? Which some other filmmakers are good at doing.
0: Lars von Trier, perhaps?
1: Like 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 Lars von Trier, who also, I think, sometimes is misunderstood, because when he accesses things that matter to him, I think he can be a pretty severe and sincere filmmaker. But yeah, Lars is a great example. Or even someone like Haneke, where even if it's not smirking, there is that sense of it's like he is constantly thinking like what is my relationship to this material and it is sort of above yours and, and, and Claire Denis does not put herself above this material she is in she's inside of it you know
0: yeah, well, I mean, Denise in so many of her films is so interested, as we said before, in flash and touch and the physical presence of people. And one reason why this movie doesn't come across as, as you say, proud of its transgressions is because it feels more like a difference of degree than kind. It's just moving just a little bit further on a, on the Denis spectrum.
1: Uh, yeah, for sure. Moving just a bit further on that spectrum and seeing the kind of liberation that that brings her. Like, There's a sequence in it you know, that you alluded to the end of the sequence, which is where the mutilation and, you know, sexuality kind of intermingle. It's, you know, a pretty funny very, you know, pun on the idea of the petit mort, you know, like the little death Mm -hmm. where it's like, it's not just a little death, like, you know, the guy literally is getting, you know, bitten to pieces. But I think of the freedom with which that sequence builds to begin with, which is that the doll character has been Kind of secreted away in the second floor of her house by her husband, who's literally boarded her up because she's kind of in heat, you know, like Alex Deca has boarded her up. She's this gothic figure, like in a tower or in an attic. It's like a Bronte novel or, or fairy tale. And those two neighborhood boys can't help but be curious. The freedom of that sequence is just phenomenal because even before you get inside the room and have what happens, just these boys listening at the window knowing she's in the tower, breaking in the bottom, she can hear that they're sort of coming up to see her like that filmmaking is phenomenal. It's so divorced from plot, it's so self-contained, it's so anticipatory. There's so much dread to it it's obviously built like a like a like you know like a sex sequence which it is and then when you're sort of inside of it you're like i'm completely here what the hell is this filmmaker gonna do because she seems at that point to be capable of anything the same way the character seems to be capable of anything and i'm always a fan maybe this makes me a little smug or like one of the filmmakers i say i don't like i always do enjoy where a movie gives an audience kind of what it wants like for better and for worse You know, so I'd like to think that all the people who lined up for trouble every day after hearing that this movie was extreme saw that sequence and like got what they wanted out of it. I don't think that sequence is very easy to watch, and I don't think that like gore hounds or irony film goers are going to have much fun with it.
0: Returning to the subject of showgirls, I remember seeing you introduce a screening of that. 10 years ago or thereabouts and back when that movie was you know kind of a so bad it's good staple every irony viewing of it every kind of showgirls party would have to reckon with the horrible sexual assault scene that occurs four-fifths of the way through and i remember you making the case that's like well you know this is a movie where like that is under the surface it's coming to a boil for the whole movie and then finally you get it and it's like artistically it's kind of the natural culmination of everything you've seen now i don't Know if there's any direct relationship between I don't know what that movie's doing and what the sort of assault scene, the very upsetting scene with Gallo towards the end of this film is. Oh. But do you think that scene plays almost some similar function in this movie as that scene plays in Showgirls?
1: That's a great it's a great question. I mean it's funny because in Showgirls, well nothing's funny about that scene and there's also nothing surprising about it if you've seen Verhoven's other movies. This is not meant as like a you know, a glowing recommendation of his early work, but like that scene in Showgirls is almost a mirror of a similar scene in Shbetters, yeah. which is a gay gang rape. I mean, it's literally choreographed the same way. Yeah. For Hovind is like very easy Baco tourism, and that he repeats himself like quite consciously, like shot for shot, right? But I mean, in Showgirls, the point of that sequence is for the Nomi character, Elizabeth Berkeley, to finally be shocked out of whatever trance she's in about her stardom. That this happens to her friend and she sees that this same showbiz establishment that she wants to enter and that's kind of treating her like shit too. That like truly these are abject people. So in Showgirls it actually kind of gives the heroine the gumption she needs to like break from the stardust to then you know kick the shit out of the rapist. Which is again pretty lazy moral calculus. You know Quentin Tarantino surely taking notes for death proof which owes a lot of debts I think to Showgirls. In Trouble Every Day the scene you're talking about what's agonizing about about it is it is a complete break of faith with the Vincent Gallo character even though we've seen it coming the entire time because the point of you in trouble every day is floating it gets inside different characters at different times when they see what they want we're with Gallo as an audience at the beginning because he's the biggest star in the movie and because he's this weird anxious gentle but loving kind of husband but his wife also has a certain subjectivity the woman who he assaults at the end of trouble every day almost as a way of not doing it to his wife which is where there's the little pathos, right? That he's going to hurt someone. His wants are going to hurt someone. So he goes looking for it somewhere else. Which, again, if you look at it as a movie about relationships and monogamy and sex, it's pretty devastating on the figurative level. But, I mean, like, literally, he goes, he finds this maid, he does what he does which is not fun to talk about it's not like fun gore it's horrible and it completely breaks with any humanistic connection we might have had with the gallo character the same way that the beatrice doll scene kind of eliminates her as an audience surrogate except for the idea that in the back of i think our minds whether people admit it or not or don't have to admit it i don't mean anyone's lying if they don't but like in both cases there's this little flicker of identification with that idea of appetite which is horrific it's horrible And in the doll's case, you know, this is a character who's clearly almost not a human being anymore, and yet that appetite is so human that she has, it's like she kind of has to be put out of her misery, except she seems pretty happy, right? (laughs) And Gallo's scene is him kind of going off that cliff. So it's similar to Showgirls in the sense that it's kind of where the movie needs to go to not just be a tease, or where the movie needs to go to not just be an empty threat. Sometimes when movies fulfill the threat that's been building from the beginning... You know, it does feel pretty empty or pro forma or formulaic or reactionary or gross. I find trouble every day, deeply sad. And not just because an innocent life gets taken the way that it does. I find that idea that he then brings that home, (laughs) brings himself home to his wife at the end. No spoilers for anyone who's listening, because it's kind of hard to spoil the plot of this movie. And you're like, well, she's safe for now because he's pretty spent. But like they got the rest of their lives. That's pretty scary. Then You were in love with her?
0: It's not the right word for it.
1: This trip gives me
0: This trip if the trip
1: gives me This trip if Do You believe in loyal things to Brown I do think that the the commonality now of this mashing up of like strong idiosyncratic style with genre tropes has just become so omnipresent. So like, I remember when the neon demon played at, at TIFF, which I actually like more now than I did before, I've kind of softened on Nick Refn a bit, but th- the point mm-hmm. being when neon demon played, I was like, you know, in 2001, we got trouble every day in 1981, we got possession at Cannes, <laughs> you know, and now we've trickled down to, to Refn, you know, from Zulowski and Denis to, to Refn, like for people who are listening who maybe haven't seen the movie, I think it's going to be an interesting viewing experience because I think the kind of movie that this, is, which felt somewhat radical in 2001, has become a bit more familiar, a bit more of a package that we're used to. I think the fact that it still kind of breaks through that packaging, I can't say that it surpasses the movies made after it because it came first, but like they have not really lived up to its example. I don't know if you would agree or if there's any candidates you would have, but it's like all the movies made in the shadow of Trouble Every Day, they're not equal to it. You know, I, I can't think of one. That pushes those buttons in the same in the same way, which is I think sometimes you do really need time, whether it's with Showgirls or Trouble Every Day, to know how great a movie you're dealing with. You sort of need to see people come at it and try and work with it or try and copy it or try and challenge it. That's why the recent Blu-ray release of it feels so triumphant. It's like it's lasted. It's endured. It's not what Quant was worried about, which was sort of, you know, a capitulation to fashion. It was a uh, a pretty substantial and in its strange ephemeral way kinda of built to last.
0: Yeah, I mean to answer your question, there are other films that have been lumped into the new French extremity that I like, but none that cast this particular spell for me.
1: I mean, because you're somebody, I think more than me, I mean, I'll credit where it's due very much more than me. You are hugely conversant with a long history of international exploitation cinema, like a really long history of international exploitation cinema, like not just, you know, the undergraduate hits, you know. You've seen lots of stuff, and I feel like, you know, you're in a position, maybe given movies that you've talked about on this and other podcasts, to kind of really, like, place this within a constellation of movies that are <laughs> troubling
0: well uh, yeah i mean I, i'm glad you asked because there are certain movies certain art exploitation filmmakers with an emphasis on the exploitation that i did think about watching this i mean jess franco oh, and sure. Jean rollin are two filmmakers who are very much about the vibe the way their cameras act you know with jess franco's zooms and his drifts their cameras have a have a mind unto themselves that's very separate from the narratives, and also freely intermingle sex and death. As well as, I mean, I was reminded of—I'm not sure if you're familiar with Joe D'Amato, who's sure, sort of, yeah. yeah, one of the kind of you know, his reputation is that he's kind of one of the dregs of Eurotrash. But I thought about him watching this because there are certain of his movies, like Emmanuel in America, that um well what you were saying about give you what you want but in the way that you don't want it and also in a kind of queasy dreamlike way cast a certain spell in emmanuel in america the way that it incorporates the snuff footage in the middle of a kind of gauzy softcore romp those are the filmmakers that i think of on that side of the art exploitation spectrum when i watch this movie
1: no i i mean i and, and it's you know it's because at some point you know the frame of reference of the filmmaker becomes immaterial it becomes with the frame of reference of the viewer right which is why I think in the interviews I've read where Denise talked about that film I mean there's a tradition of silent horror that she's trying to evoke in some of those images and certainly some of those cityscapes you know I mean I don't want to misquote her but I seem to remember you know in every she talked about Dreher and about Murnau you know these were things that are I think more interesting to her than you know Euro trash <laughs> horror but I think that it's one of those movies I mean this is maybe be a pretentious thing to say, too. I feel like that's a movie that on its own, it just enlarges any viewer's frame of reference. I think that it's a movie that when you watch it, that's what I meant by rewires certain spectatorship uh, circuits or increases certain appetites. I think there are some movies, even if they have nothing to do with it, nothing to do with actually influencing it or being influenced by it, it kind of made those movies easier to watch or made, you know, sharpened an appreciation for them. I mean, I found that after I watched Trouble Every Day, that was sort of around the same time that I started looking at, you know, all kinds of stuff for for the first time. I think I started looking at more, a lot of Maurice Pilot movies for the first time around that time. I think that when I was watching Trouble Every Day, I sort of started to take a look at a lot of Zulowski movies for the first time. And while that might sort of be coincidental, I credit that movie with giving me some of the mental space or some of the, the chops that I need. Needed to watch this other stuff, And in that sense, it really does remind me of David Lynch, because David Lynch, while he is a great destination in and of himself, he's a great gateway. I love filmmakers who are a gateway and a destination at the same time. I don't mean that you get beyond Lynch. I think all roads lead back to him, but he's a great reason to go watch a bunch of other stuff. And so too, I think, is, is Trouble Every Day. So I hope that people listening to this fine pod who are seeing Trouble Every Day for the first time as a result, you know, hear some of the other titles you were just mentioning and maybe the They'll be you know, equipped to see them now.
0: Yeah, well, and to that, I'll just add that Jess Franco, Claire Denis, Jean Roland, Apichatpong. Pong, not to equate these filmmakers, yeah. not to draw a false equivalents, but in my own cinephile evolution, I felt that accessing certain textures discovering that images can be composed in certain ways and uh, certain moods can be evoked in non-conventional ways. All those filmmakers to me, again, without equating them, feed into each other, are all part of my own evolution. Frankly, something in Jess Franco unlocks certain things to me that make a movie like this. Easier to understand, and then this yeah. unlocks certain things that make other movies easier to understand.
1: No, that's a beautiful way to put it, and you know I, that's exactly what I what I meant too. And I don't think that the the this movie has to be a skeleton key for everyone. I just hope that that people who are watching it, you know, not just get something out of out of it, but follow whatever you know impulses it leads. It's going to say too about Denny. I mean, because it's just so fun when you start saying nice things about people. It's fun to just kind of go on. There's a lot of filmmakers where there's nothing nice to say about them. I think with Claire Denny, I. <laughs> never run out of nice things to say. You know, a critic who I think both of us have read, certainly who was important to me, and who's almost not written that much on Denis because they're such close friends. But, um, you know, the title of Kent Jones's book, Physical Evidence, comes from a quote by Claire Denis. And not like a famous quote. I think it's something she said to him, where she's like, you know, the movie is the physical evidence that something happened. It's the physical evidence of some kind of conflict. Like, someone... ...pushed for something, someone fought for something, something was put into motion that wouldn't have been put into motion otherwise, and then the movie becomes what she calls physical evidence, which is a wonderfully analog sentiment about shooting on film, and, you know, a non-weightless, non-CG thing, you know, all of that, polemically, is nice about physical evidence, but when we're talking about the body and the extent to which the movie is about the body, the the title, Physical Evidence, is just so perfectly tied to Mm -hmm. something like, like Trouble Every Day, where, yes, it's a camera... And yes, it's, you know, a technologically mediated experience, but for some reason, it's a movie that when you watch it and when you think about it, you feel as if you have been kind of like bodily inside of it. You know, oh, yeah. that's a short, oh, yeah. it's a short list of movies where my memory is not of the screen. The screen completely disappears in my memory of trouble every day. And you're just like there in the hall or you are just there in the, in the hotel room. That's, you know, that's filmmaking, baby. I mean, that's Claire Denise amazing at it. It's a pretty singular talent that she has and she should be uh, appreciated as long as we have her. Cause I've never seen a movie of hers that doesn't give the physical evidence of something She's just the she's the greatest.
0: Well, beautifully put. And Adam, thanks so much for being on this episode uh oh, yeah, that's great and, and for talking about this movie which i'm so glad i was able to see you have to we'll have to go back
1: for the uh, the up in the air episode
0: <laughs> yeah uh, you know we haven't uh, we haven't talked about that movie yet and i know you're kind of uh you're kind of a scholar in that one so well, what
1: what better movie to discuss you know the end of the bush era and the beginning of the obama <laughs> era than uh, up in the air uh, thank you so much i have such a great time talking about trouble every day thanks